Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Infinite Podcast, where we want to challenge the people of God to see the realities of their context and reflect on and reformulate concepts such as mission, missionary, mission field, holistic mission, and more. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Rudolph Gacy. Rudolph is a research fellow at the Akrafi Kristaller Institute of Theology, Mission, and Culture in Ghana. He serves as the director of ICT and the Institute's Center for the Study of Early African Christianity. He is also a fellow at the Center of Early African Christianity in New Haven, Connecticut, USA. His teaching and research interests are in the areas of early Greco-Roman and North African Christianity, gospel and culture, mother tongue biblical studies, African Christian leadership, and technology in theological education. His doctoral thesis is published as Jesus Christ as Logos Incarnate and Resurrected Nana, an African perspective on conversion and Christology. Listen and learn with us as Dr. Gacy walks us through the writing process and main points of this publication. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book. Could you please tell us a little bit about your life and work? Okay, thank you, Nina. It's good to be on this infamous uh, platform. Always grateful for the opportunity to share. So as you mentioned, my full name, uh, Rudolf Kukugezi. Kuku is a, a name for a Wednesday-born uh, male among where I come from in, in the central part of Ghana. I have a first degree in computer science uh, from one of our national universities and I found my way into theological studies in the year 2007 uh, when I, I had the late Reverend Professor Kwame Bidiakon gave a speech. If I was a, an anniversary lecture, then I was quite intrigued by it. So I wanted to study a little bit of theology. Uh, so I found my way into the institute that he helped found, uh, the Akrofi Krishala Institute of Theology, Mission and Culture. And I've been here since <laughs> 2007, uh, first for the MA Theology and Mission. And then through Prof. Bediako's encouragement, I should say, I continued uh, with further theological studies. And now I'm a staff member at the Akrofi Crystalline Institute. Yes, so <clears throat> background in computer science. And then now spent last 15 years of my young life in theological training and education. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh, with your training, what kind of theological themes and academic interests do you have? Yes, thank you. So I, I should say that when I was first introduced into, if you like, the academic discipline of theology. And once again, I take some little pride that Prof. Kwame Bidiakon was my first academic theological teacher, if you say. <laughs> and I was, at that time, I was attracted to 
the early development of Christianity, uh, which was also an interest that he had, but it got me more interested in knowing Christianity from the time it began, the development of Christian thoughts. So yes, largely or generally, I'm interested in how people conceive of Christ, receive Christ, and think of him, uh, if you like, with their cultural resources, something that we will call like Christology. Uh, so I'm, I've, I've become interested in, in, in the development of Christian thoughts in the history of, of Christianity as it's, it's expressed across the cultures. These things, of course, I will learn from Bidiaco and then also Andrew Walsh, who uh, recently passed away, but who was the uh, doctoral advisor of Professor Kwame Bidiaco, and also a long-time friend and mentor. So my interest in theology in the areas of Christian thoughts and its interaction with Coaches, you know, around the world. I should say I, I learned primarily from Kwame uh, Bidiaku and Andrew Walsh. Yeah. Wow, what two wonderful mentors you had. Yes. <laughs> also, I know that both of these mentors were really into learning from your context. And you mentioned a bit of that what is the journey like for you in learning from your context where you are right now? Yeah, so when before I came here, I, I mean, found myself in a scripture union and then in Christian student unions. Uh, here we call at the tertiary level the Ghana Fellowship of Evangelical Students. I think in the U.S. you have interversity. So, which is more, again, for, uh, for generally used words, evangelical, evangelical thinking, uh, fundamental place of the Bible in Christian life and thought. So I have that background, but I had not had reason to take, if you like, my context and for that matter, my language, quite serious in my Christian thinking and, and being. Um, but coming here, so it was here that I, coming to, the, um, I mean here, the Theological Institute, Afro-Christian Institute, where I got my first uh, mother tongue Bible. <laughs> so I began to take serious uh, the place of language. Because you can't talk of context without language, really. Uh, you can't talk of a culture without its language. So reading the, beginning to read the Bible in my mother tongue was also a, a necessary first step for me. And in the Ghanaian context, of course, is uh, an example of what we may call the African context. And you have its own unique Christian history uh, and the development of the various uh, strands, if you like, of Christianity 
Uh, I belong to what we normally call a mission-funded church, uh, the Methodist Church. So there are some few things that one would take for granted. Uh, the, 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 the place of the Bible uh, and, and, and of course the Holy Spirit in a, in a Christian uh, journey. But my exposure with um, scripture, you know, I mentioned Garfest, the Church Organization, also brought some, if you like, Pentecostal dimension uh, to, to my own Christian Christian um, understanding. So coming here helped me to connect not only my Christian understanding, but also my cultural background. I mentioned language, but opportunity to think further how Ghanaians, Africans, or specifically uh, the, the group that I belong the Akan group, how they also have responded to, to the Christian gospel and how churches within uh, the Akan people, for example, have survived and developed over the years. So, and of course, mention of context, you know, um, our association with uh, Britain and the, and the and what colonial times, and so you also have to deal with the legacy of this association, uh, which has informed our own educational system, uh, and the fact that going through school, um, our indigenous languages were not given much of an academic interest until you get to the higher levels. Um, unlike some places that we may know, uh, but English language has become our official language, formal language and all that. And that, to some extent, depending on where you live in the country, has a way of cutting you off of your traditional context. Yeah, so, I think I, that's what I can say uh, in terms of the context in which we live, both cultural and political, as well as religious. Thank you so much for that background. I, I just love hearing how people's understandings and um, love of God has expanded through learning more from their culture and context. So thank you for sharing. So pivoting now to your publication, could you please introduce what you're going to be sharing with us today? Okay, so what this publication is largely the substance of my doctoral research, uh, which was broadly concerned with Christology, as I mentioned earlier, um, understanding of the person and nature of Jesus and the implication of that understanding into in our lives, into the things we do. So I'm sure I'll, I'll have a chance to speak more about that, but that broadly, that, that was my interest in the doctoral research. 
and I looked specifically at what we call Logos Christology and Ancestor Christology. And that took me to the early centuries of Christianity, uh, like the first three centuries, and then also uh, African Christianity in the, the, the last four or five decades, the thought of Jesus as ancestor, ancestor Christology. I ended up comparing the two, the development of the two, and some of the implications uh, that ensues from that. Yeah. Thank you. So you mentioned a bit of this, um, where the ideas came from, but could you walk us through the process of creating and writing this book? Yeah. yeah. So the subject matter for my doctoral research actually resulted from an essay, semester essay I did on a course we call Aspects of God Christian History. And I did, a, I did an essay on Justin Martyr's Logos uh, Christology. Justin Martyr was uh, an early Christian convert whose uh, ministry was in Rome. Uh, prior to becoming a Christian, he was uh, one who see a philosopher because he searched uh, the various schools of philosophy at his time with the hope of realizing what uh, Plato had uh, stipulated that the end of philosophy, if you like, is the realization of the good in that context of God, of the, of the supreme being. So Justin, as a young person, was in pursuit of that in the area of philosophy. To find that vision of God that Plato intimated one will find at the end of philosophy. But he was frustrated because at this time, most of the teachers of philosophy, some of them were even asking for the money of the tuition before he even starts. <laughs> and he felt that philosophy was had lost its true essence. Uh, but one old man encouraged him to read the Old Testament, the prophets, and to find a, a supreme philosophy in that context. And according to Justin, it was in reading the prophets and the things they said about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, that what uh, is love for the prophets, the scriptures, and eventually of the Christ of whom spoke about. And Justin in his writing, the writings that come to us were primarily a, a response to some false charges and unfair treatment of Christians in his time. So in the process of making a case that Christians of all people were the ones who were actually doing what was right, and so the ill treatment were called for, and he could appeal to the empress. Some of the Roman emperors were students of philosophy. So Justin could appeal to them in a day that it is not the virtue of philosophy to, for leaders to do what they are doing in their unfair treatment of Christians. But in the process of that, he made a case of the fact that, and this you could see was a, a question of what was God 
doing among the Greek when he was active among the Jews. And connected to that is what does Jesus, who was a Jew, got to do with us Greeks? So that kind of general question revolving, Justin uh, makes the case with the inspiration or the encouragement of the, the fourth gospel, the, the gospel according to John in chapter one, where there's a reference to Jesus as a logos becoming flesh. So for Justin and in Greek, logos can mean both word or reason. So Justin will pick this dual sense and make a case that it is unreasonable to attack the Christians, for example, because they are people who are living according to reason, according to Logos, because they have the Logos, the supreme Logos, the supreme reason. And Justin will say that it is not only the Christians who are living according to Logos now, but there were people in the Greek tradition, people like Socrates, who also lived according to Logos, because they had a measure of the Logos, who is Jesus Christ, of the Logos in them. And people like Socrates, because they lived according to the Logos, they were also even persecuted and wrongly accused. So what is Justin, what was Justin saying? That um, Christians have the Logos in full. That same Logos that people in the Greek tradition had in measure, he has become human in flesh and Christians have him in full. And what I pick from, from Justin's example is a development in the understanding of Jesus as Logos. Because some of the things that John said of Jesus as Logos in the flesh uh, were foundational to Justin. And some of the things that Justin said, the implication of who Jesus is as Logos incarnate. Of course, the Gospel of John did not explore those. Uh, simply because Justin is now writing in a wider Greco-Roman context. And he is now applying this, if you like, foundational idea of Jesus as Logos. In, in, in reading Justin and in trying to understand his Logos concept, obviously it took me further to was how was the Logos idea explored or explained in their Greek traditional thoughts uh, or in Greek philosophy. So that would take you to one Heraclitus, who is seen as the first person to conceptually use the word logos to mean something that he was. Uh, and from there, you have the school of philosophy known as the Stoics or Stoicism, who also explored the, for the Stoic, for example, Logos was that um, undergirding principle of the universe. The universe 
for the Stoics is ordered because there is a principle behind it. And that principle, that gives reason to creatures and creation, as it were, is the Logos. Uh, and there you have everything that is reasonable in this world uh, has a seed of the Logos, as it were. In uh, but more importantly for Christians, there was a Jewish uh, writer by name Philo who lived in Alexandria in Egypt. And he, in his life and thoughts, you could see sought to show that Jewish thoughts, Jewish religion, Jewish ideas were comparable to the great uh, Greek philosophical ideas and even superior to that. So Philo fundamentally wrote in the Greek language, read most for the most part, a Greek version of the Old Testament we call the Hebrew Bible. And in his efforts to demonstrate the superiority of Jewish thoughts over, if you like, the Greco-Roman, Greek and Roman ideas, he also made use of the Logos concept. And more so for him because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the creative word of God, uh, you know, uh, God is known to have created the word. He spoke things into being. And so the psalmist will talk of God creating the word by his word, by his wisdom. Logos, the word there is translated Logos. The Hebrew Davar is translated Logos. So Philo developed further the understanding that God, because of his nature, when he was creating this physical world we see or the create or creation, he did something through which he would create because he couldn't touch what he was creating. So he needed a middle, uh, a mediator, if you like, a middle uh, principle. And for Philo, this middle principle is the Logos. Because in his mind, the Logos is not like God, but at the same time, it is also not like humans, okay, in the in-between. <laughs> so, all these ideas about the Logos that Philo uh, developing, if you like, and critiquing, if you like, from with the Stoics uh, will, to a large extent, inform early Christian um, thinkers and writers in their conception of Jesus as Logos, something that was begun by the, fourth, the writer of the fourth gospel but will be developed further by people like Justin and then Clement of Alexandria, as well as Origen. These are all early Christian writers, I think. So when I, I was writing the essay, it just got to me that what these writers were doing with the Logos idea and understanding Jesus as Logos and applying that understanding is it 
it, it hit me that it's similar to what some African theologians, African Christian writers were making of the idea of ancestor among Africans because um, Christian writers came to acknowledge that the role of ancestors in, in African life, particularly in African societies that have some place for the ancestors in their you know, life and being, um, the ancestor idea, Christians had to deal with it. And, and in the process, um, be able to show how Jesus is superior than the ancestors. But to be able to show that Jesus is superior over something, you need to also show that he's able to assume that and then it's also at the same time superior. Uh, because you should, you should take note that when the early Christian writers were saying Jesus is Logos, they needed to explain how he was different from the Logos conception among the Greeks. <laughs> so in the same way, when Christians, African Christian writers were thinking of Jesus as ancestor in their process, they had to also show how, yes, he could be seen as an ancestor, but he's also more than an ancestor. Yeah, and, and that, that at that stage in my semester essay writing uh, got me interested in the writings of African Christian uh, uh, theologians on, on the whole theme of ancestors and Christianity. People like um, Charles Nyamiti, a Tanzanian who lived in Kenya for most of his part, uh, one Benzin Bujo, and then of course Kwame Bediakon. Uh, and, and their thoughts on, on Jesus as ancestor uh, got me got me things. So when the opportunity came for my doctoral topic, I, I I wanted to explore that. I will come back to it if you have some further questions. But maybe before I end up, what also helped me eventually in in thinking of these two concepts or conception of Christ was the principle of conversion that Andrew Walls had developed. Uh, so coming back to Andrew Walls again, um, he, in, in, in studying Christian history, came to a conclusion that conversion to Christ with respect to uh, a cultural context takes place in three identifiable stages. And that was helpful for me. So quickly, those three stages he, he dealt with is what he called the missionary stage with Apostle Paul. And, and this is his discussing with respect to the Greco-Roman world. So there's a missionary stage where Paul is fundamentally a missionary to the Greco-Roman world. And then there is a convert stage where you have people within the Greco-Roman world becoming Christians, becoming converts. And this was typified for him by uh, Justin Martyr, the convert stage. And then Andrew Walls also identified that, that there is a third stage, what he will call a refiguration stage, 
which according to him again in the greco-roman world is typified by origin of alexandria and origin was a second generation christian and the little we know about his background was that his father raised him with a bible on one hand and greek learning on the other so origin grew up if you like a man of both worlds so for andrew walls he was able to re refigure the whole of greek learning towards the direction of jesus christ and then the implication of that to christian theology and the rest is history so i've mentioned christology and conversion the process so the book that was eventually published out of my my doctoral research has a subtitle an african perspective on conversion and christology yeah <laughs> thank you so much i just feel like i have learned from right. even just this short blurb <laughs> um, i think it's also just so cool like it really does kind of exemplify what you were talking about before, getting to learn from both of these mentors and also people from all the way in the past and then yeah. also contextualizing it to now. So that's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You've mentioned a bit of this before, but are there any more main themes that you would like the, the audience to pick up on in this book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, I've mentioned conversion, but also the nature of conversion uh, and how Christology, in my little argument, it's uh, an intricate byproduct of the process of conversion. So what people, when people are uh, going through the conversion process, along the line, they have some conception about Jesus. Uh, in other words, Andrew Walls, you know, highlighted the fact that conversion is turning towards the direction of Jesus Christ, what is already there in a particular context. And this he contrasts with proselytization. Uh, you know that Jews and the proselytes, when you become a proselyte, you uh, kind of adapt Jewish way of life, uh, beginning with the circumcision. But in Acts 15, the decision of the council in Jerusalem was that Christians, particularly Greek Hellenistic Christians, did not need to be circumcised to be saved, as it were. And so for Andrew Walls, that decision in Acts 15 brought out the nature of what Christian conversion is about. Uh, turning to Christ what is there, rather than uh, taking on a different culture, cultural world or cultural ideas, but taking what you have and turning it towards the direction of Jesus. And as I thought through in my own research, uh, I realized that when we, we are taking what we have towards the direction of Jesus, then we develop 
some conception about Jesus, who he is, and that is Christology. So again, Christology as an intricate byproduct of the process of conversion. And it, it means that in every context, we should be careful, we should be mindful of what people are saying about Jesus. Uh, you can't you can be quick to fault people in what they think of Jesus. <laughs> but we also take note of the fact that because we have the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament, of course, whatever we say about Jesus in our context will have to be uh, not so measured, but will have to place in context of, 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 the, of the Bible. Uh, in other words, this is also a continuing witness. And one witness cannot contradict another witness of the same person. So what the Akan says, the Akan person will say about Jesus, genuinely from an Akan's point of view, should not ultimately contradict what Paul will say about, or what Paul has said about Jesus. Uh, something like that. So the foundation of the Bible, we don't take for granted. But at the same time also, there is freedom for people to be able to say something about Jesus based on their encounter with him and what they have by way of their cultural resources. So that, that informs, if you like, the nature of conversion and also of Christology that I will I would like people to, to to appreciate when they come across this work. And also a theme conversion is a process, something that Andrew Walls and Bedia Kunlap also echoed. The fact that it takes several generations. I mentioned Andrew Walls's three stages of conversion. So it means that Christians should always seek to discern the stage in which their cultural context is as far as the conversion process is concerned. So whether you are in the missionary stage or you are in the convert stage or you are in the refiguration stage. Now, the little argument I've made in this book is that, and again, moving on with Andrew Walls, that African Christianity is at the refiguration stage. Uh, there are several generations of African Christians who are being invited to pay particular attention to their cultural ideas, traditional cultural ideas, as well as contemporary cultural ideas, and how we connect or turn that towards the direction of Jesus and how we can reclaim the understanding of who Jesus is with these categories of thought. Um, and also an idea to, to realize is that moving, uh, taking the command, what we will call the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, uh, making disciples of the nation. 
so that what we think and say about Jesus ultimately should help us in making our cultures, our nations, disciples of Jesus Christ. What, what, are, what am I saying? That Christology is, is part of the disciple-making process. Christology is a product and at the same time a tool in, in the conversion process of, of our cultures towards the direction of Jesus. So these are some of the things I would I would like people to to pick to take away when they get a chance to look at this way. How would you hope people respond to this piece? Yeah, of course, with every scholarly way, you would want some critical responses. <laughs> so it's it's a debate as it were so that we can think together how um, we, we go about making the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it were, relevant to our context. And so I will, I will appreciate, you know, a critique, if you like, or further thought as to how this which is being said in the African context, how that may be true also in this in the in the Asian context or in the South American context or even in the in Europe or North American American context. Um, <clears throat> and I think also uh, this uh, we live we live in a time that the discipline of world Christianity, you know, has come to the to, to the fore, um, and so this is a, a demonstration, you know, of how an understanding of the Christian nature of Christianity, if you like, from one part of the world, could also. Uh, be an example for others in another part of the world to understand their own Christian process and what they can do relevant to their context. So, in other words, this 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 work is uh, is part of the uh, world Christianity discourse. Uh, what uh, an African Christian mind is making of what has gone before in Christian history and what is happening now. Um, in the, in the, it could be a small African context, but nonetheless, it is still a witness about who Jesus is and what he means to a group of people. And that can be an example for others in their, their various contexts. Yes. Finally, um, this book was originally published in October of 2020. How have you reflected on this book more? Yeah. So thankfully, almost every year I, I have a chance to teach um, an aspect or make a little presentation of it in one of our 
our lectures because uh, there's a course we we teach uh, we call Roots of Modern African Theology. And at the latter part of this course, we highlight some um, you know contemporary Christological developments. Uh, and so I get a chance to to reflect further into orient students and this subject matter. But recently what, what got to me again is the fact that I've mentioned Christology as a product of the process of conversion, but recently it also got to me that Christology really is also a fruit of gospel and cultural engagement. So how Christians engage their context, their cultural context, with the gospel of Jesus in the, in the process makes way for them to say something more about Jesus. Uh, you know, and even during the research process and after a comment that Paul made in Ephesians, in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, that he had written this little piece so his audience will get to know and understand or get to appreciate his understanding of the mystery of Jesus Christ. And that for me shows that all of us are invited to have an understanding of the mystery of Jesus Christ. And that understanding is open-ended. And so as an Akan Christian, mindful of my Akan traditional context and world of thought, I can say something about Jesus, in this case, as a Nana or as the Nana, uh, one who has come to show us how to live before God, and one who has come to show us that there is a life beyond death that we can look to, the resurrection. And so in, in my Akan parlance, my Akan language, Jesus becomes my Nana, the true Nana, uh, the true exemplar of God. And as one Akan writer will say about Nana, uh, exemplar of God, and who God is like or ought to be. <laughs> so Jesus, as a, my true Nana, shows me who God is like and how I can relate to him. So back to the point I made that as we think about Jesus and his relation to our cultural context, as we seek to bring his truth to bear in our cultural context, in the process, we should be able to say something about him with the resources that we have in our cultural context. And we should not be, we should not shy away from it because those things that we will say about him are evidence of the fact that Jesus has touched us, has touched us deeply, and we are able to sing of his praise and say something about him with what we have. And what we say, as we've been saying, because we have the example of the New Testament, 
what we say about Jesus with what we have, again, should not and cannot contradict what the early witnesses of him that we have in the New Testament. Yeah, so it, 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 it keeps coming back to me and for me to take seriously the whole area of gospel and cultural engagement uh, and, and helping students and others to to be to 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 enjoy that freedom in in being able to also say something about Jesus as they think about Jesus and their cultural context. Wow. Thank you for sharing. It's been fantastic to hear from you um, and especially on this book of yours. How could someone learn more about you and your work? Okay, so uh, as a faculty member of the Kofi Crystal Institute, of course, our website, um, aci.edu.gh, you can read more about what we're doing, uh, about a little about my profile. I've had some publications in a journal, what we call Journal of, Early, journal of African Christian Thoughts. Uh, so if people have the chance to subscribe to it or to... Uh, by specific um, volumes. There are interesting articles, uh, uh, publications that go way back from 1999 onwards, 98, 99. And it's, a, if you like, a testament and a testimony to the kind of things that the Institute has been interested in uh, over, over 20 years now. Uh, one can get um readings on that i'm not too active in social media apart from facebook <laughs> um and uh, i tried twitter and instagram but i've not been good at that but more active on facebook and um as this podcast is i'm also open to um uh, any opportunity to 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 make a presentation or to talk um about like uh, what I've been sharing so far and others that I'm also interested in. Thank you so much. We'll definitely get people in contact with you to continue this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Nina. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the platform you prefer. If you think this could be helpful for someone you know, please share it with them. The best compliment we can receive is a referral to someone else. See you next time!